Start back in Galatians chapter 1. I'll tell you how big of a rock I live under. I um, didn't really know till just like yesterday that today was Super Bowl Sunday. I'll tell you how much I care about the NFL. But um, hey, if you care about it, I just looked it up so I could tell you. There's five minutes and 47 seconds left in the first quarter, and the game is. And it's a barn burner so far. But there's five minutes and 47, so you got a lot of time. You're going to see the whole second uh, half, whatever it is. I do know about football, but I don't care about the Super Bowl. Galatians 1, which, which one of these little markers did I use for Galatians? Ooh, okay. Y'all had a good day? Y'all get a nap and everything? Must be that one. Okay, me either. Um, hey, there's certain words that uh, evoke emotion. We just found out which ones evoke Rick's emotion. And, uh, but, no, I found a study. Y'all think this is interesting, I hope. Uh, I found this study. There's psychological research into this. They call them emotional trigger words. You probably have some emotional trigger words. Emotion can be good or bad. Uh, but uh, marketing professionals use these uh, emotional trigger words to try to get us to spend more money. Now, the number one, according to experts, and I don't know who they are or what makes them experts, but according to the experts, the number one emotional trigger word is free. Okay? Free. Second one made me think of one person. Some of y'all had the opportunity to get to know her a little bit, but that was my granny. Okay? She never passed this four-letter word up without stopping. Sale. Okay? My papa used to say, Betty Jane, you're going to save me into the poorhouse. But see, her philosophy was this. If it's on sale, it's a percentage off. If it's on sale, if she didn't buy it, she'd essentially be giving the store the other part of the money. Right? It's 30% off. If she didn't spend the 70, she'd be giving them the 30s the way she saw it and tried to justify it. But, you know, whatever it takes to make your world go around, but uh, these trigger words. Another one is new, you know? There's how many people, there's absolutely nothing wrong with this brick they're carrying around in their pocket, but the new one comes out. Now, I'm not this way. This one's going to have to stop working before I get another one, okay? But they say, um, they got a new one. Oh, it'll do something this one wouldn't do. It'll tell me my heart rate. Well, you know, you can also do this. You know, but anyway, but... This phone is going to do so much more. It's new. i got to have the new. New is an emotional trigger word. There's another one, proven. That's a, you, know, you get these old actors, and some of you say, hey, hey, they're not that old, you know, but you get these actors from yesteryear that come on in the middle of the day, I'm told, and I don't watch TV anymore, you know, cable anyway. Don't see all these commercials, but you got all these older actors, maybe the Fonz, some of these, they come on trying to sell you, they say, this is proven. This is proven. I don't know who some of the other ones were. That's just the one that came to mind. You know, you got the guy about diabetes. He comes on there, you know, and you got all these. They say, this is proven. You say, well, that guy says it's proven. Well, I might as well buy that or do it anyway. Of course, there's emotion, there's negative emotional trigger words. We're not going to get into those other than to say, you know, there's a reason why you're not supposed to yell fire in a crowded theater. You know, that's an emotional trigger word. But, you know, as we read the Word of God, there really are some words that ought to elicit emotion. 
as we're reading through the Word of God. We ought to come. There's some words we ought to come across, and and that ought to stir something up within us. But unfortunately, you know, some of these words they just become so commonplace in our Christian vernacular that they kind of lose their sense of awe and wonder sometimes. As we're going to look through, we're going to look at just two verses out of our text from this morning. There's a word that I then want to, to for us to look in depth at out of these two verses. Read with me, if you will, in Galatians chapter 1, uh, beginning in verse 6. We'll skip the intro. Galatians chapter 1, beginning in verse 6. Paul says, I marvel that you are turning away so soon from him who called you in the grace of Christ to a different gospel, which is not another, but there are some who trouble you and want to pervert the gospel of Christ. Let's pray together. Father, I do thank you for your word, and I thank you for the truth of your word. I thank you for the power of your word and for the power of the words in your word. And I pray that we would be mindful as we read your word, be mindful of these truths that are found even in these small words and how life-changing these are to us. I pray that we leave here being ever more mindful of your love for us. In Jesus' name, amen. The word I'd like for us to consider tonight is in verse 6. He says, I marvel that you are turning away so soon from him who called you in what? The grace of Christ. I want to spend just a few minutes tonight looking at this word, grace. Paul rightly points out to the Galatian believers that it was only by the grace of God that, that he called them. It's only by the grace of God that salvation was available to them in the first place. Of course, Paul told the Ephesians, uh, that it's by grace that you're saved through faith. It's just my observation, but I don't think we spend enough time in the modern-day Christian culture looking at words like grace. I'm a, a part of a Facebook group of, of, of pastors from around the, the country, really, and there was a somebody posted on there not long ago, said, what are some things you think the church ought to spend more time talking on that they don't? And there was a lot. I didn't see this in there, but there was a lot of other things people mentioned, but I'm thinking we really need to talk more about grace. You know, what is grace? To use our Christian vernacular, using our church lingo, we'd say it's the unmerited favor of God. But here's the problem. You go around at work and you start talking about grace and somebody says, what is it? You say it's the unmerited favor of God. Well, people don't talk in church lingo, you know, in, quote, the real world, so to speak, you know, so we got to put it where folks can understand it. What is grace? It's something God gives you that you don't deserve and can never earn. You've figured it out that I like to listen to Adrian Rogers preach. He says a lot. He's got a lot of good little witty comments, and I bought a book recently. Mary didn't even know I bought this book yet. I didn't find out. But I bought a book, and it's just called Adrianisms. It's just full of Adrian Rogers' little snippets, little quotes. And I found this one that just really uh, hit the nail on the head, I thought, Adrian Rogers says, with grace, there's nothing to earn, but much to learn. With grace, there's nothing to earn, but much to learn. What can we learn tonight about grace? Quickly, I want to look at three passages of Scripture from Paul's other writings, from some other epistles, and point out some things to remind us some things about 
grace. Turn with me, if you will, to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. 1 Corinthians chapter 15. The first thing I want to show you is that grace propels us forward. Grace propels us forward. 1 Corinthians chapter 15. We're going to read several verses for context and then focus in on just a little bit. 1 Corinthians 15 verse 1. Moreover, brethren, I declare to you the gospel which I preached to you, which also you received, and in which you stand, by which also you are saved, if you hold fast to the word which I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you, first of all, that which I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he rose again the third day according to the Scriptures and that he was seen by Cephas, then by the twelve, and uh, that he was seen by over 500 brethren at once, of whom the greater part remained to the present, but some have fallen asleep. And after that he was seen by James, then by all the apostles. Then last of all, he was seen by me also, as by one born out of due time. For I am the least of the apostles, who am not worthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace toward me was not in vain, but I labored more abundantly than they all. Yet not I, but the grace of God which was with me. Therefore, whether it was I or they, so we preached, and so you believed. Even though Paul was forgiven, he never completely in his own mind got over his previous life, what he was before he was saved, when he persecuted the church, when he personally sought out Christians to kill. He was completely forgiven. But you know, God may be able to to forget. He may be able to cast our sin as far as the east is from the west, but he allows us to remember. He allows us to remember, and Paul says, because of the things I did, he says, I'm the least of the apostles. He goes on to say, he says there in our text, he says, I'm not even worthy in verse 9. I'm not even worthy to be called an apostle. But by the grace of God, he was saved. That's what he means when he says, by the grace of God, I am what I am. But hear this, Paul says. He says, his grace towards me was not in vain. Do you know what that means? Paul's saying, I'm not about to let his grace go to waste. The grace he showed me was not in vain. I'm not going to let it go to waste. Remembering what we were before we were saved. Remembering what we could have been had we not been saved. Ought to propel us forward in the work of the kingdom. That's what happened with Paul. Paul remembered what he was before he was saved. Paul saw what Jesus did for him. And he said, I'm not going to let that go to waste. I'm going to spend every day working for him. That's what Paul did right up until the day his life was taken from him. The knowledge of God's grace energized Paul in his work. Verse 10 there, the last part of verse 10 or in verse 10 there, he says, 
yet not I, but the grace of God which was in me. Now, every once in a while, I'll look at the message translation, Eugene Peterson's message. I don't encourage that to be used for Bible study, but I do like to look at it from time to time just to see how he translates certain things. And sometimes it hits the nail on the head. He says here uh, in in the message uh, in verse 10, it reads like this. It was God giving me the work to do and God giving me the energy to do it. That's what the grace of God was in the life of the Apostle Paul. He saw what he could have been. He saw what Jesus did for him. He saw what he was and what Jesus did for him. And it gave him the energy to do the work of the kingdom. It's the same thing Paul told Timothy over in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 1, when Paul told him, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. As we read the epistles of Timothy, and specifically 2 Timothy, it leads us to believe that Paul was concerned that Timothy might slip, that Timothy might be in some way weakened in his ministry or in his faith. And Paul says, Timothy, this is how you stay strong. Remember the grace of God. Remember what he's done in your life. And when you remember how good God has been to you, it ought to strengthen you for today and for tomorrow. The grace of God propels us forward. Turn to Romans chapter 5. Romans chapter 5, I marked it with this one. Romans chapter 5, verse 1. Romans chapter 5, verse 1, Paul says this. Therefore, having been justified by faith, you know this text. Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we also have access by faith into this grace, in which we stand and rejoice in hope of the glory of God. So what did he say about grace? He said grace is where we stand. My point here is that grace is what keeps us. We are saved by grace. Here in Romans, Paul's saying we are kept by grace. He says it's where we stand. Stand carries the idea here, and the Greek word used here carries the idea of permanence, that it is immovable, that it is to remain in place. To put it another way and to use another illustration that illustrates this same word, you think about what keeps this building standing here? What keeps this building uh, standing here level? It's not sagging over here, sagging over there. It's a firm foundation, right? Before they built this building, they first they had to construct the foundation. That's what any good carpenter would do, what any good builder would do. Paul is saying that grace is our foundation. It's where we stand. There are mainstream churches in our community, around the world, and I say even right here in our community that teach you can lose your salvation. they teach. I remember having a discussion when I was, before I was in the ministry, I was just a, I don't know, I was probably 18, 19 years old. I was on the volunteer fire department at Louisville. Me and this preacher from another denomination were both on the fire department, and we were riding on the back of the brush truck through the woods because there had been this fire, and we were riding along looking for hot spots, and we'd spray it, you know, 
we got off on this lose your salvation business. He said, if you can convince me, I'll become a Baptist. And of course, never going to convince him. But he apparently hadn't read this scripture and a bunch of others too, but you know, Paul says grace is where we stand. The grace of God is what keeps us. And if the grace of God could let us go, it's not very graceful. Paul said those of us who are saved are permanently planted in grace. That's what that word stand carries, the connotation that we are permanently planted in grace. What this also tells us is that we don't have to do anything to remain saved. Now, we should do things because we are saved, but we don't have to do any kind of maintenance checkups, so to speak, just to remain saved. See, that was one of the problems that Paul was addressing in Galatia, what we looked at this morning. Those false teachers were coming in saying, oh, you're, you're Christians, but... You know, if you want to, if you really want to stay Christians, you need to become Jews first, and you need to go through all these steps, and and then you can really be a Christian forever. You can really follow Jesus forever. But that's a works-based approach. And here's the way Paul ultimately addressed that with the Galatian believers. We didn't read this far this morning, but he, Paul says in Galatians three three, he said, "Are you so foolish, having begun in the Spirit, are you now being made perfect?" In the flesh. Paul called that foolishness. John MacArthur put it this way He says, If a dying Savior could bring us God's grace, surely a living Savior can keep us in His grace. For a believer to doubt the security of his salvation is to doubt the grace of God. We're kept by God's grace. One more thing, 2 Corinthians chapter 12. 2 Corinthians chapter 12, a very familiar passage of Scripture. 2 Corinthians chapter 12, we're reading more for context again. 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 1, Paul says, It is doubtless not profitable for me to boast. I will come to visions and revelations of the Lord. I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago, whether in the body I do not know or whether out of the body, I do not know. God knows. Such a one was caught up into the third heaven. And I know such a man, whether in the body or out of the body, I do not know. God knows how he was caught up into paradise and heard inexpressible words, which it is not lawful for a man to utter. Of such a one, I will boast. Yet of myself, I will not boast except in my infirmities. For though I might desire to boast, I will not be a fool. For I will speak the truth, but I refrain lest anyone should think of me above what he sees me to be or hears from me, and lest I should be exalted above measure by the abundance of the revelations. A thorn in the flesh was given to me, a messenger of Satan to buffet me, lest I be exalted above measure. Concerning this thing, I pleaded with the Lord three times that it might depart from me, and he said, My grace is sufficient for you. My strength is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, most gladly, I will rather boast in my infirmities that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Therefore, I take pleasure in infirmities, in reproaches, in needs, in persecutions, in distresses for Christ's sake. For when I am weak, then I am strong. My grace is sufficient for you, Jesus told Paul. Paul had a problem. 
and we don't have the faintest idea what it was. You ever hear a preacher say, I know, beyond a shadow of a doubt, what Paul's thorn in the flesh was. Just go ahead and call him a liar and walk away because he doesn't know. Paul doesn't tell us. A lot of people can, uh, can guess, can speculate. A lot of people do. But Paul doesn't tell us. And that, I don't know, maybe there's a reason Paul doesn't tell us. Maybe it's so that we can take this passage of Scripture and apply it to our lives because as Paul said, my thorn in the flesh was such and such. And we'd say, well, this doesn't apply to me because I don't have such and such. But we can look at this and say, I've got a problem with X, Y, or Z. And Jesus says, my grace is sufficient for that. Well, I've got a problem with this. Well, my grace is sufficient for that. You remember the story of Jesus feeding the, the 5,000 and, and it, looking at John's account of it there, John chapter 6, Jesus tells the disciples to go feed these folks. And in verse 7 of that text, Philip says, 200 denarii worth of bread is not sufficient for them, that every one of them may even have just a little bit. 200 denarii. That's, you know, for the Sunday night crowd, you know this, a, a, a denarius was one day's labor. That's what a common laborer was paid for, one day's labor. And, and Philip says, we couldn't go out and work for 200 days, one of us, and come back with enough money to buy enough bread to feed these people. I mean, no, we're not talking about feeding them. We're talking about giving them each a little scrap, just a little bit. We wouldn't even have enough money to do that. That word sufficient that Philip uses is the same word Paul uses, the same Greek word. Philip said that wouldn't be sufficient. You know how the story ends. Jesus took a little boy's snack and fed the whole multitude. They filled up 12 basketfuls of leftovers. and 200 days worth of income wasn't sufficient, but the grace of Jesus was. The grace of Jesus was sufficient. His grace was sufficient then. His grace is sufficient today. I once heard it said Christianity is not the subtraction of problems from life. You know, that's what a lot of people want. Well, I'm going to start. I got all these problems. I hadn't been going to church. I, got, I hadn't been doing this. I, hadn't, I know I hadn't been living. I'm going to start going to church. I'm going to start living for Jesus, and all my problems are going to melt away. Nope. It's not going to happen. Christianity is not the subtraction of problems from life. Christianity is the addition of the power to meet the problem. And that power is called grace. Jesus said, my grace is sufficient. So this week, and moving forward, may we be ever mindful of his grace that keeps us, that it's sufficient for every need, and may it propel us forward to do the work he's called every one of us to do. Is there anything before we dismiss?